please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Uh, you can also follow along on page 8 of your bulletin. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of God. Uh, for the past month, we've been looking at what the Apostle Paul says about uh, marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, we've had four sermons on this. Today's number five, and last week, it's a relief for me, believe it or not. I'm glad it's going to be over. Uh, preaching on the same passage for six weeks has been a bearer, but it's a very important passage, whether you are single, married, wanting to be married, um, in, a, in a broken marriage, or if your marriage is completely blown up. We've been talking about this. You need to know something here. In the Greek, there really is no verse 21, then verse 22. In other words, in the Greek, there's no division between those two verses. Paul literally says, submit to one another, one another out of reverence for Christ, wives uh, to their husbands. Those two verses are actually combined. They're not divided. Actually, there's no word for submit in verse 22 in the Greek. It's really just all rolling out of verse 21. It's part of one verse, really, one, one statement. What does that mean? We said a few weeks ago, in verses 15 to 21, this is the context in chapter 5 of Ephesians. We have Paul's teaching on what it means to be filled with the Spirit, what it means to be a Christian, and it ends with verse 21. That's the culmination, the ability to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, we said. That's all of us. We're called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's the application. Then, then he goes into this application in marriage. But what he's really trying to say here, Paul's model of marriage comes directly out of what it means to be a Christian. It's combined. You see, there's this traditional view of marriage. It's all about duty. It's all about commitment. Marriage isn't about passion. It's not about that spark. What it is is about family. It's about duty. It's about commitment. Uh, it's why you never got divorced in the old days. Why not? you would say, well, these people are fools. Why would they ever marry for love? You deal with it. Why would you put your children through it? Why would you put your family through that? Why? It's because marriage is about family. Marriage is about duty. Marriage is about commitment. But that eventually gave way over time. Over decades in American society, that gave way to using marriage for fulfillment, to fulfill your dreams. And so marriage has become about passion. It's become all about the spark. Connection, of course, then you get weak on commitment. 
Because when the passion dies out, well, I'd rather be free, I'd rather not be married. You see that? They're two wholly very different views, different approaches to marriage, and yet at the heart, very, very similar. Why? Because in both cases, in both cases, it's about serving yourself. Both of those views of marriage are about me. Friends, deep inside, and this is the reason why, deep inside we know you need both. Deep inside you want both. Deep inside, uh, you want the commitment and the passion. You want the duty, but you, you want the choice, but you want the love. But the Apostle Paul says, only a Christian can have both. Only a Christian can be both. Commitment and passion. How does that play out in marriage? Well, the Apostle Paul describes here that it plays out in your gender roles, in your roles. And so we're going to learn three things today, the roles of the husband and the wife, why the roles, what are the implications, and then, well, I mean, where are you going to find the power? Where are you going to find the will? Where are you going to find the, the, the energy, the engine to be able to live those out faithfully? We're going to look at why the roles, uh, the implications, and then the power for it. First, we're going to look at why. Why the roles? Paul says in verse 22, wives, submit to your husband. This is, by the way, you got to have some courage to stand up on a stage and talk to people in the modern generation about gender roles. I just want to say, all right, Paul says in verse 22, wives submit to their husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife. What is he saying? The word head in the Greek is the word authority. The root word is author. What does that mean? Now, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, that's the first book of the Bible, Eve was created out of Adam. In Genesis chapter 1, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. In other words, both the male and the female together reflect the image of God. Both of them are equal in their ability to reflect the image of God. Both of them are equal in their dignity, equal in their value, equal in their potential to bear the image of God. But Eve was created out of Adam. That doesn't mean Eve is weaker. It doesn't mean that he, she is smaller. It means that God created Eve to complete Adam, wholly outside of himself. That's what that means. And in Genesis chapter 2, when Adam sees Eve, he says in Hebrew, this at last is bone of my bone. This at last is flesh of my flesh. In other words, Adam had a longing that he didn't even know about until he met Eve. Adam had a longing that he himself didn't know until he saw Eve for the first time. And when he saw Eve, he sang. It was the first poem in world history. And he's thinking, this person, this woman is so different from me and yet it's like I've been missing you all, I, all my life. It's like I've been needing you. It's like almost there's been a void, an emptiness in my life all my life. I didn't even realize that until I met you. Now I am complete. You see, on one hand, Adam is saying, I'm totally sufficient in my relationship with God. But now that I met you, I realize more about myself than I ever knew before. Now there's a unity that I never understood. Now there's a fit. You are bone of my bones. You are flesh of my flesh. You are complementary to me. Eve is a compliment to Adam. It's a compliment that he'd never experienced before and never experienced since because of sin. And yet when Adam meets Eve, what does he do? He names her. He names her. Why? Now think about this. When God created the world, how did he create the world? He said, let there be light. And there was light. 
And what does God do after that? He calls the light day and he calls, uh, he calls the, the darkness night. He names them. Why? To name something. Parents, you know this. Pet owners, you know this. To name something, right, is to have authority over that thing. To name someone is to have authority over that person. You see that? And, and to bring something under your authority. So Adam is naming all the animals. Why? Because he's bringing them under his rule. He was called to subdue the earth, to bring everything under his rule. He's bearing God's image, God's image as king, God's image as ruler, God's image as a creator. And when Adam meets Eve, he also names Eve. He's basically saying, now you are under my authority. You are, I am your head. But why does God create Eve then? Adam needed a suitable helper. That's what the Bible says. Adam was alone, and God says, this is not good. Adam is wholly sufficient in paradise with God, and yet there's something about being alone. God says, this is not good for Adam, and so he creates. He creates a helper. That Hebrew word helper is the word enabler. Eve is not meant to be silent. Eve wasn't meant to be passive. It's not a passive word. When Eve was created as Adam's helper, that means that Eve has a power wholly outside of Adam. Eve has resources wholly outside of Adam that Adam doesn't have. And if used right, it would enable Adam. It would empower Adam. That means without Eve, Adam is lost in the world. Without Eve, he is lost in himself. He doesn't know himself fully. And so if that power gets abused, then Eve could subvert Adam. Eve can try to replace Adam. It's essentially what we tried to do when we were in the garden, tempted of the fruit. Essentially, we were subverting God, choosing on our own apart from God. That's what sin is. And so to help is to have a power, to have a confidence, but also a humility. Just like God, God himself is a humble God. It's putting yourself underneath somebody you love and running your strength and your ability and your gifts and your power through that person with a resource and a strength that they don't have. It's why the Holy Spirit is often referred to as what? An empowerer, an encourager, a helper. That's why. That's the why. Well, what are the implications? Verse 22, the wives are called to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. There are quite a few implications here. I'm going to give you seven of them, all right? Seven of them. One, the husband and wife are part of each other. They complete each other. They fit together. They are a complement to each other. Verse 31, the two will become one flesh. But secondly, why one flesh? Think about this. Physically, sexually, the male and the female body, literally, their bodies are literally interlock. They literally become one body. The husband moves towards the wife. The wife receives. And what the Bible is saying here is that our physical bodies are mere extensions of our souls. In other words, just as the husband moves towards his wife physically, just as he moves towards her sexually, what happens physically really comes out of what happens spiritually, psychologically, financially, legally, emotionally, relationally. It's like a dance. Imagine a dance. If these two people are not face to face, but they're side by side, 
They can both go left. They can both go right. And it all depends on who's going to carry the tempo and who's going to carry the, 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 the direction. You see that? You're almost competing against each other. But if you're intimately dancing, you're almost interlocking. And you can't do the same thing. To do the same thing would be collision. You see that? And so if one person moves forward, the other person moves backward. Instead of there being identical or equivalent movements, there's a movement, there's a lead, and then there's a response, there's a complement, and it's harmonious. In the same way, there needs to be a complementary interlocking of gender differences, gender roles in the soul. Now, there are people in this room that are saying, well, that sounds awfully old-fashioned. Carol Gilligan She's an American psychologist, but she's really a noted, probably one of the foremost noted feminists in American uh, culture right now. She's got honorary degrees from over 10 universities and American institutions and colleges, um, notably Swarthmore, which is near Philadelphia, Haverford College near Philadelphia. And one of her most important writings is a book called In a Different Voice. And there, I'm just going to paraphrase what she says. Basically, what she says is that in a world where we are trying to eradicate chauvinism and discrimination between our sexes, we are now starting to discover. This is a noted feminist. She's saying we are now discovering and rediscovering that the two sexes are utterly different. And we are rediscovering that and appreciating the differences between the sexes. That they're, they're, they're different. They're opposing and yet interlocking, and the roles are different. The genders are different. The roles are different. In the soul, they're different. Well, three, then the Bible says that husbands are called to be the authority and the wives are called to be the enabler. What that means is the husband can't demonstrate his role as an authority well without the wife. If you're married, you need your wife. You're lost without your wife. Fourthly, what that means is that the husband and the wife are totally different, maybe even opposed at times to each other, but this is God's design. This is intentional. You're like, oh my gosh, we're always fighting. We're so different. How can this be? God designed it. That's the answer. That's why. Because together, you will complete each other. To find oneness in the midst of two completely opposing and different people different bodies, different roles, different thoughts, different insights. God created two complementary opposites that love one another, and if you affirm one another, care for one another, and submit to one another. That's all part of his design. What happens is that, that, that also means that you're going to argue with one another. You're going to critique one another. You're going to confront one another. Why? Because you're opposites. Because you're opposites, and because that's intentional. That's God's working in this. He's going to reveal things about one another that you never saw about yourself. So Adam sees Eve and he says, this is amazing. I've learned things about myself that I never would have learned had you not been in my life. And yet in Genesis, they were naked and there was no shame. There was no shame. They saw themselves. They saw each other fully in the just utter fullness and yet there was ease and a comfort in seeing each other and seeing themselves with reality, clearly. On one hand, what that means is that you're opposed. This person is going to be the opposite of you. And yet, on the other hand, they're enabling you in their differences. You see that? You know what it's like? 
when I was in college, one of my favorite classes, it could be my favorite class in college because I was a very science and math-oriented person, uh, and, uh, but one of my favorite classes was um, in music theory, the music of Beethoven. You learn all about compliments in music theory. Those of you who are music majors, you're learning and studying, you're used to learning and studying music. There are themes and there are counter-themes. And if, you, if it's fit properly, there's a complexity and beauty all at the same time. One of my favorite pieces uh, is Beethoven's Piano Concerto Number 3. You got these complementary instruments. You have a piano and you have a symphony, and they're going back and forth. They're almost dueling back and forth. They're conflicting with each other and yet submitting to each other and merging with different themes and counter-themes. And when there's a wrong counter-theme, what do you have? It's called dissonance. It's awful because you're competing for priority. But when these different instruments come together with the right fit, there's a complexity and a beauty. It's fuller, it's richer, it's more enhanced, it's glorious. And the Apostle Paul is saying, marriage is supposed to be like that. You're no longer just two chemicals that are colliding and competing against each other. That's science. This is art. This is color. Well, that means five Husbands, you need to listen to your wives a lot, all the time. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Why? To fulfill yourself? No. Well, this is not about, well, I'm making decisions for the family. I'm making decisions for us when it's really for you or for your ambition. Wives, you need to respect your husband's authority because this is not just about your plans or your fears or, or your protection or your preservation or how you feel. Remember, this is about you bearing, both of you bearing the image of God. So you are battling your idols for God's glory and you're doing it together in your collision. Do you see that? It's glorious. You're talking, it's, the, the Bible, the Apostle Paul is talking about your character, how you love God and how you love others. The two greatest commandments by loving your spouse. Husbands, you need to earn the respect of your wives. So you don't just do whatever you want. I'm more gifted in this. I'm better at this. I'm going to manage the money. I'm going to manage the, all the financial decisions, where we live, how we live, the, all the business decisions. That's not what the Apostle Paul means when he says you fit together. He says love your wives. That means you need to listen to your wife. You need to argue, but listen. You need to empower the gifts and the insight and the wisdom of your spouse because that is your wisdom, and ultimately it's your character that's at stake. That's what God is really doing there. Do you think God, it's petty to think that all this and all your prayers is so that God will just give you that one house that you want, or that car, or that job, or that promotion, or even that person in your life. That's too petty. This is for God's glory. This is for his vision, his vision for you and what he wants of you, what he wants you to become, which he's given you a perfect picture of in Jesus through his word. And he's using the most intimate relationships in your wife to build that in you. You see that? So you arrive at oneness by challenging each other and yet nurturing each other and caring for each other so that both of you are growing in faithfulness, in transformed faithfulness to God and to one another. Well, six, that means there are lots of resources here to reflect the image of God when you fit together. But if you don't fit together, both the husband and the wife can abuse their roles. You're going to start competing with each other. 
You're going to start to subvert each other, lower each other, ruin each other. On one hand, the differences between your, the husband and the wife can make you great, and yet on the other hand, those differences can ruin you. And so the Bible from the beginning makes it very, very clear that the, that the husband ruling over his wife or oppressing his wife is a curse of sin. Right from the beginning, you see that in Genesis chapter 3. Because you are not reflecting the character of God or the image of God, his goodness or his kindness or his humility. So when, the Paul, when Paul in Ephesians 5, he's saying, husbands love your wives, what he's saying is, I want you to reverse the curse of sin. I want you to subvert the curse of sin and move toward your wife with love by one. On one hand, you're going to address their sins. You're going to address one another's sins. You're cleansing each other. You see that? You're washing each other through the word. That's verse 26. Secondly, by keeping that future radiance, that future glory of the person in view. You're looking at the end in verse 27 of that person, who that person will be in their glorious state. And you are playing just a a big contributor in that person's life here on earth. And then verse 29, by feeding and caring for that person. That is what we call biblical masculinity. Well, biblical femininity says, wives, submit to your husbands. That means, yes, you are powerful. Yes, you have gifts. But can you control those gifts? Can you control your strength? Can you humble yourself To run those strengths and your gifts through your husband, that's a choice you have to make. It's not an act of weakness. It is a choice. It takes a certain kind of power to be able to do that, but it also takes a certain kind of self-control and humility to do that out of reverence for Christ. You know why? Because God is like that. God's Holy Spirit works like that. Again, that means you gotta challenge each other, argue. Sometimes you're gonna fight, but in the end, Will you choose to submit? Because that very act of submission bears the image of God. Now, abuses. We've got to talk about this. On one hand, this is not the wife giving unquestioned obedience because then you're not completing your spouse. You see that? A lot of people misunderstand this passage. The thing that means that the wife is just going to give unquestioned obedience. And even the church throughout history has mishandled this passage. Now, if the husband is hurting the wife, forcing her to live in sin, in a sense, what he's doing is he's forfeiting his authority because he's living and he's leading irresponsibly. But as the husband upholds his biblical responsibility, the wife needs to respect the authority of the husband. Otherwise, then you're not completing your spouse. You see that? On one hand, to the wives, the Apostle Paul is saying, don't be desperate. Don't be over-dependent because you're not running your strength through your husband. What you're doing is you're actually lowering the power of your husband that way. On the other hand, husbands, don't be tyrannical. Don't be a tyrant. The text never says rule your wife. The text actually doesn't even say lead your wife. The text doesn't actually say that without first calling you to love your wife. The text doesn't say rule your wife or even lead your wife without first calling you to love your wife. Verse 28, as you would love yourself, your own body, you are one. And so there's no room for oppression. There's no room for manipulation. Rather, submit to one another. Let the humility of Jesus, let the grace of Jesus rule your heart so that marriage becomes less of a boxing match and more like a dance. That means you're going to need to surrender your idols. 
We all have things apart from God that, that just, we just need to have this because this is what's going to define me. This is what I need to prove myself. This is what I need to, to make me feel like I'm okay. Those are idols. We need to submit those idols. We need to surrender those ambitions. We need to die to our selfishness. If you've been here these last four weeks, that's what we've been talking about. The Apostle Paul says in verse 25, husbands, you need to give yourself for your wife. Give yourself up. That's how you love like Jesus loved. When Jesus gave of himself, anytime you see him giving himself up, he's referencing the cross. And so, seven, the text doesn't say, husbands, force your wives to respect you. The text actually says, love your wives. In other words, husbands, don't act like you deserve it. Don't act like you've earned it because you don't and you didn't. Cherish your wives. Cherish your spouses. Gain the trust of your wife. Gain the trust of your husband. How? Make decisions with her. Make decisions with the family in mind over yourself. But I'm doing all this for us. Not if you're really doing it for you. You're not loving your wife. You need to put her life and her advancement and her spiritual maturity, her maturity in faith above your own desires. In a covenantal commitment where the husband loves the wife sacrificially, with action, we said last week. It's not just symbolic, it's not just sentimental, but there's action. And you're really thinking for her all the time and you're dying to yourself as, as a reason for that. And the wife is submitting to the headship of the husband, the authority of the husband, voicing and pushing and challenging with her thoughts and opinions, but really seeing the leadership of the husband, really trusting the leadership of her husband. Well, then you're going to experience the beauty of marital symphony, the consonance of marriage. Now, <clears throat> where do you get the motivation and the strength to live like this? I mean, how do you do this? Where do you get the strength to do this? In verse 23, Paul says, wives submit essentially the way we submit to Christ. He's the head of the church. But we don't submit well to Christ, do we? I mean, we are such selfish people. Apart from God, we are such selfish people. We don't even submit well to Jesus. We're constantly trying to take over as the head, as the lead in that relationship, in that marriage. That's what we're doing. What is anxiety? God may not get this right. He may not give me what I need. I, I, he doesn't know me. He doesn't get me. I refuse to listen. Anxiety reveals areas where you don't, submit, you don't want to submit to Jesus, and so you want to replace yourself. You want to replace Jesus with yourself. You want to separate from Jesus. What is depression? God got it wrong. And now I'm helpless, and I'm lost, and I'm disoriented, I'm in despair. It reveals the areas where you don't want to submit to Jesus. And so you want to separate from Jesus. And yet Jesus is the perfect husband. Look at his perfect beauty. Look at his sacrificial love for his people, for his church. Jesus is constantly living, constantly thinking, constantly ruling for the church, for his bride. He's never done or made a single decision for himself. In Acts chapter 2, what does the apostle Peter say? Jesus is both Savior and Lord. He is Christ and ruler and always, he's always thinking for you. Every decision, if you don't see that, you will never be a faithful, faithful spouse in your marriage. Look at Jesus' commitment to you. 
I mean, Jesus doesn't just have a crush on you. He is set on you. He is completely set on you. When you have a friend, a lot of us, we've all at some point had a friend that started dating at some point in their lives. And you meet this person and you're like, I don't like him. I don't like her. You, I mean, we've all gone through that, right? I don't like this person. So what do you do? You somehow muster up the courage to meet with your friend and you say, look, this person's no good. And here's why. And you give them examples. What happens next? Do they embrace you and love you and thank you for your excessive wisdom? No. What they do is they get very defensive. You don't know him like I do. You don't know her like I do. I see that person's heart. You see, that's called an immature love that refuses to see everything, that refuses to see reality. A mature love may be committed, but sees everything. And that's Jesus looking at you. He sees all of you. We are naked in front of him. And in our nakedness, we have incredible shame. We're constantly hiding. Adam and Eve, when they sit there, hiding from God. God says, where are you? Do you think it's because he didn't know where he was? He wants Adam to know where he was. Where are you? And he, he says, I hid. Why? Because he realized he was naked. And then now there's shame. You see that? And so us, here we are. Jesus sees everything about you. He sees every sin, every flaw, and still says, but I am committed and I will pay the price. And he does. He does pay the price. On the cross, every blemish, every sin has been covered in his blood. No parent would ever want their son to marry a woman that's sinful. No parent would ever want their daughter to marry a man that's sinful. But God, in his infinite love, sent his only son, not only to marry this bride, but to die for his bride. Look at the love of Jesus. Look at the love of God. Look at the love of God. At Gethsemane, here's Jesus. He's one with the Father, in union with the Father. And yet with the Father, what's happening? He's starting to stare down the abyss, the fiery furnace of separation from God. He's starting to feel the dissonance of separation from his Father. And it's overwhelming. He says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he says. And so he says, he's, he's, he, it's just completely tearing him apart. And he says, take this away from me. But then what does he say? Not my will, yours be done. Look at the total submission of Jesus. Equal in dignity. Equal with God. And yet he doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, says the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Total submission. Bound in his love with the Father. Bound in his trust of the Father. To the death. To the cross. And on the cross he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is now I am suffering the cosmic dissonance with the Father. And so the Father has abandoned Jesus. He has rejected Jesus. Why? Because he was so flawed. No, he was perfect. He is the most perfect person that ever walked the earth. When you love somebody, they say, when you're married to somebody, they say you start to look like that person. On the cross, the apostle Paul says that Jesus became sin. Why? Because of his heart for you. Because of his love for you. And so he takes on your image. Why? So you could take on his image. You are holy. You are covered. And it's not like, it's not like you just, he just looks like you. He became sin 
so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so on the cross, Jesus Christ gives up his righteousness so that we would become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ takes on our sin. Why? So uh, he takes on our sin and he would become sin. Look at his commitment to you. Look at Jesus' passion for you. It's his victory, his triumph wrapped up in you. His glory is wrapped up and tied to you. His joy is tied to your joy because your sin and your brokenness are tied to his. That's called union. It's an unequal union. We get everything he deserved. He got everything we deserved. And yet we are one. God has poured out his wrath on his son. This is war against his son. He becomes separated from his son, divorced from his son, complete and utter brokenness. So Jesus Christ gets the darkness and the earthquake and the wrath. Why? So that we can be delighted in by God. So that we can be reconciled to God for your peace. Jesus Christ is stripped naked and in shame, humiliated before everyone. And he suffered and he died. Why? So that you could surrender even your shame. No more shame. And so when he sees you, like Adam sees Eve, says the prophet in the Old Testament, he sang. Even on the cross, do you know, he was reciting Psalm 22. What are Psalms? They are songs. That means that in the midst of bleeding to death, suffering, choking to death, in his pain, He's losing the father and he's lost the father and yet he's thinking of you. He's thinking of rescuing you and you know how Psalm 22 ends? Psalm 22 ends proclaiming Jesus Christ as savior and ruler and victory and the gospel going to all generations for God's glory. You see that? There you see true love bound by commitment and bound by passion. Only in the gospel can you have both. Only in the gospel can you be both. If you look at Jesus' commitment to you, if you look at Jesus' passion for you, next you see Jesus completing you. Romans chapter eight, all things work together for the good of those who love God. You know what that means? Jesus Christ is sustaining all things. He's governing all things, all the time, every circumstance, everything that we're going through here in this room. You put it all together, there's not a single thing that, that is outside of God's amazing plan. Every circumstance, single friends, this gives us the power to first submit to Jesus. Jesus has to be your first love. And this thing gives you the power then through your friendships to conduct and live with purity and grace. You see that? But we have friends here, I mean, whose marriages have just blown up. They've just blown apart. That means every hurt every pain, anything that has ever happened to you, anything that you ever endured, you need to know that Jesus is for you. Well, how do you know that? You know why? Because the gospel teaches us that everything that happened to Jesus was for you. Christ is head of the church, and he never abandoned his body. He never rejected his body, never left his body. And even now, he's thinking and praying and interceding on our behalf. And he's got authority over us because he's living and he's working for you. So don't resist him. You've got to submit to Jesus. He didn't die on the cross just for righteousness, just for justice, just for peace. He did it for his love. Lastly, you've got to look at Jesus' authority. Because of his love, I mean, he knew. You ever watch King Kong? It's an older movie. There were many versions. Famous poem. 
that when King Kong beheld the beauty and beauty stayed his hand, he knew that he were as dead. He knew that it was the end of him. You see that? Jesus knew he had to die. Love means that you are not your own and you will never ever be your own again. That's love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, that means your success is her success. But her success is more important. Her thriving is more important. It comes before your success, even before your life. That's what it means to give yourself up. Where can you find the courage and the power to do that? You've got to look to the gospel. Because you are submitted to Jesus, even if your wife submits to you, trusts you, you need to empower her and listen to her and heed her instruction. When the most beautiful, the most powerful person that ever walked the earth enters into your life, your love for Jesus, your submission to Jesus means that you've lost control of yourself. Jesus Christ has become your Lord and King. Then you, it's like you and Jesus have formed an interlocking oneness together. You are now in a complementary relationship with Jesus. He completes you and you will fulfill his agenda. You will complete his work. You are complete in him. And the Apostle Paul says that in the same way then, marriage is a picture, a broken picture. There's brokenness. There's pain. There's hurt. It's a broken picture of that surrender, that mutual submission, that interlocking oneness, those complementary roles that complete one another, the dance. If you can't surrender to ultimate beauty, then you're never going to be able to surrender to your earthly spouses. But if you do submit to Jesus, then you are complete and made beautiful in him. That's gonna, then you're going to be able to empower other people, enable your spouse, submit to your spouse, love your spouse, surrender to yourself, and give up your life. It's going to complete your marriage. It's going to fill your marriage. Wives, the only way that you're ever going to choose to submit to your husbands, you've got to look at Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The cross is the ultimate act of submission. And <clears throat> look, everything Jesus did was an act of submission. He's completely submitted to the Father. He gave himself up yet for you to the point of death. Husbands, the only way you're going to be able to give yourself up, to die to yourself, to sacrifice in that way, to love your wives in that way, you've got to look to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, he endured the cross, scorning its shame for you, gave up his life for you. To the depths that you believe that, you'll be able to give up your life and your ambitions and your desires for your wife. And when the wife submits to the husband and the husband loves as he is called, a supernatural, beautiful, complex, yet supernatural oneness happens. Do you believe that? Let that transforming power work in your life. Let's pray.